At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the death of Trayvon Martin, which put a bright spotlight on Florida's stand-your-ground law. The case centered around whether George Zimmerman, a neighborhood watch coordinator in his gated community in Sanford, acted in self-defense when he shot and killed Martin, a 17-year-old African-American high school student. It drew national attention because Sanford police did not arrest him until almost two months later because of confusion over the Stand Your Ground law. That requires police to have specific evidence to refute a self-defense claim. Stand Your Ground allows people to defend themselves with force if they feel threatened. At least 38 states are Stand Your Ground states, with 30 stating there is no duty to retreat from an attacker in any place in which one is lawfully present. Zimmerman was eventually acquitted and did not use the Stand Your Ground claim in his defense. We'll go into the history of this and how Stand Your Ground has morphed over time in a bit. First, we'll hear from Tallahassee attorney Ben Crump, who has been on the front line of the Black Lives Matter movement, representing families of African Americans killed by police. Those include Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and George Floyd. He spoke with Bradley George. The other, I would say, would be Marquise McGlotton there in Clearwater, Florida. You know, this uh, young man who was killed by this white man who, for whatever reason, thought he had a right to impose his will on this black family. And when Marquise McLaughlin sought to defend his black family, the white man shot him, even though Marquise was backing up and then claimed, stand your ground. A jury listened to all the evidence and just like with Maude Arbor, uh, sentenced the found the white man guilty and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And I think these cases are significant because you see us making progress where people are now starting to, in some instances, to be held accountable for killing unarmed black people, especially black men, which was something so rare, something so remote a decade ago that people did not believe it would happen. I never forget with Trayvon Martin, in case this old black woman told us one time when, you know, we were thinking that the killer of Trayvon Martin would be convicted because we thought there was overwhelming evidence to support such a, a verdict. Old black woman said, these white people just playing with black people's emotions. They ain't gonna say, uh, white people to jail for killing black people. That's been going on in America for 400 years. Crump will be in Tampa next week for a Black History Month celebration at the Tampa Bay History Center. As Ben Crump just alluded to, cases involving Stand Your Ground have exploded into the public consciousness in recent years. 
Next week, a trial date has finally been set for Curtis Reeves, a former Tampa police officer who shot and killed Chad Olson in a Wesley Chapel movie theater. That was eight years ago. We'll talk about the history of this case and the evolution of Stand Your Ground with Catherine Varn, who's been following this as a reporter with the Tampa Bay Times. Catherine, welcome to Florida Matters. Thank you so much, Steve. It's great to be here. So, Catherine, why has it taken eight years for this trial to start? So it kind of depends on who you ask. Everyone has their own sort of beliefs on what's made it stall so much, but it's it's kind of a few things when you drill down into it. First of all, what, what the defense attorney, Richard Escobar, he's representing Mr. Reeves, will tell you is that there are a ton of witnesses. It happened in a very public place, obviously a movie theater with lots of people inside. And so there was a lot of work to do when it comes to discovery and in interviewing witnesses and getting depositions, scheduling those depositions. So there was a lot on that front. And then there is also the stand your ground defense that Mr. Reeves pursued. So, so this really was a true stand your ground case where he filed a motion to dismiss the case under the you know grounds that he was in fear of for his life or great bodily harm when he uh, shot Mr. Olson. And so it went to a stand your ground hearing, um, which is sometimes it can take a day, sometimes it can take longer depending on the complexity of the case. And in Curtis Reeves' case, it took five days and he ultimately lost that bid for that to be his defense. So obviously now still moving forward and we'll go to trial. Um, so that took a while as well to, to prepare for and then get to the actual hearing. Some of the other factors that have played a part, I mean, obviously the coronavirus pandemic has you know delayed everything in the court system significantly. And this trial got moved back a little bit, at least twice because of the pandemic, which caused jury trials to not happen for a whole period of time. Obviously, that you know, putting a bunch of people in a courtroom together is not like very safe in a pandemic. So, um, so that that was a that was a situation too that um, that you know everybody was dealing with. Uh, there's been some speculation from the prosecution side and from a, a lawyer representing um, Mr. Olson's widow, Nicole Olson, that uh, Mr. Escobar, the defense attorney, is kind of purposefully delaying things. His client is now 79 years old, um, so he's getting up there in age. Um, at one point, Bruce Bartlett, who at the time he said this wasn't the state attorney yet, but he is now, and he's the uh, Bruce Bartlett is the Pinellas Pasco state attorney. His office is prosecuting this case. Uh, Mr. Bartlett kind of implied that maybe Mr. Escobar is delaying until his client either dies or gets uh, so old um, and, and feeble that he can't actually go to trial and serve out a sentence. So uh, Mr. Escobar has very much denied that and denied it the whole time. And there's also a few other things like the, the lead prosecutor on the case has changed a couple times. The judges have changed a couple times just because it has taken so long. So obviously at that point, the new lawyers have to get up to speed. The new judges have to get up to speed. So, you know, it's kind of a mix of factors, but it does seem like everybody is on the same page that this is going to go to trial. February 7th, I spoke with uh, Mr. Escobar, uh, Mr. Bartlett, and the lawyer for Nicole Olson. His name is TJ Grimaldi. And they all said, we're going to trial. It's happening. 
uh, Mr. Escobar told me he had already like rented a, a house up in Dade City to have sort of a war room to, over the course of the trial. So it does seem like it's actually, you know, knock on wood, going to go to trial this time. And just a correction, I'm sorry, the standard ground hearing was 10 days, not five days. Hey, just to be clear, Curtis Reeves, the Tampa police officer who's being accused here, he's on, out on bail, right? He hasn't been in jail at all. He's not being held. Correct. Yes, he's been out on bail the whole time. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. That's an important factor because obviously when I've talked to Mr. Grimaldi about kind of uh, Nicole Olson's feelings on all of this, it's tough to sort of know that he's out, at, that Mr. Reeves is out and able to spend time with his family and see his wife and he's restricted as to where he can go, but still he's out and able to spend time with his family and obviously Miss Olson cannot spend time with her husband and it's been a, you know, a very long and journey for her. And so that's definitely a factor too. those, those emotions at play. You know, the length of preparation and, and perhaps some of the confusion in this case is maybe a cautionary tale for some of these stand your ground cases. In the middle of all this preparation for this case, the law behind stand your ground has changed, right? Uh, didn't governor Rick Scott at the time, uh, sign a new version of the law. Can, can you go into that a little bit, how that changed things? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's another um, a factor and in, in why it's taken so long. So the law changed in 2017 to where rather than it being an affirmative defense, as in the defense has to basically prove their case that their client was in fear of great bodily harm or death when they did whatever they did, whether shot someone or or beat someone up or, you know, whatever the case is, the burden of proof was switched to the prosecution. And so basically the state, the, the state attorneys have to prove by clear and convincing evidence that stand your ground doesn't apply. So it's kind of a double negative there, but it shifts the burden of proof to the prosecution. So open the question of do all these cases that have gone through stand your grounds that, you know, where the burden was on the defense um, have to be redone, basically. And Curtis Reeves was one of those. And, and ultimately, the that question went all the way up to the Florida Supreme Court. And they decided that no, it does not apply retroactively. And so that kind of settled the question. And Curtis Reeves moved forward. But you know, that took a year uh, or so maybe longer to get to that point. Yeah, so that that played a part with the with the delay delaying as well, and um, also created a lot of confusion once again, which I think people have strong feelings about stand your ground and and definitely you know feel types of ways about it. But I think no matter how you feel about it, there's there seems to be general agreement that it's kind of a confusing law and it's pretty. Um, confusingly worded, very broad, and it's, you know, being used in ways that lawmakers never even imagined, you know, when they first passed it in 2005. So this just kind of added another wrinkle of change and confusion in a law that's already a little bit wonky. Do you find that, that there's a, because of all this confusion, there's a chilling effect on the willingness of, of officers and prosecutors to, to bring these cases to trial. Uh, a lot of times they might be confused or dissuaded by the wording of the law and cases that might normally go sliding through the system, they get delayed because of all this confusion. It's hard to say if that's happening on a widespread level. Part of one of the big problems with Stand Your Ground that I encountered covering another a uh, big self-defense case, uh, the case of Marquise McLaughlin, who was shot and killed by Michael Draca in a Clearwater convenience store parking lot. 
um, back in 2018. One of the things I ran into reporting out that story is there isn't a ton of data on Stand Your Ground and how it's being applied. Uh, the Tampa Bay Times did a big look at it back in 2013. So that has some information about kind of the weird ways it's being applied and, and some of the um, you know, it, more interesting outcomes and trends and things like that. But it, it's still hard to sort of quantify how much it's impacted the legal system. But I will say, you know, the right to defend yourself has always existed. It dates back to like common law. So, so self-defense is not a new concept by any means, but there was always a duty to retreat and stand your ground essentially changed that duty to retreat. So it says, you know, the statute says something to the effect of, you know, someone has no duty to retreat and has the right to stand his or her ground, you know, and use deadly force up, up to deadly force if they believe that it's necessary to prevent harm to themselves or harm to other people. So self-defense, you know, I, I do like, I think people are using it to try to uh, you know, obviously not have to go to trial at all. And that's, you know, get the case totally dismissed, obviously. But in the case of Michael Draca, that was seen as a standard ground case, but he ultimately did not use that defense. And it's the same thing with George Zimmerman. They ended up not going through the standard ground process and just using a typical self-defense defense at trial. So that's kind of that that in itself is confusing, right? Because people see a case a certain way and, and everyone thinks of Zimmerman as a standard ground case and it's not. Um, so uh, and then it's like, well, what is a standard ground case? At what point does it become that? You know, and I think the big thing with Drake, I think Drake is a really good example of kind of how it can affect the system and how it can make these outcomes that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So Sheriff Bob Galtieri, the Pinellas County Sheriff, did not arrest uh, Michael Draca because from his read on it, and the sheriff is a lawyer and he's kind of a policy wonk a little bit and very like by the book. And so um, he, he really drills down into these things. By his read on it, he said it was within the bookends of Stand Your Ground. And so he felt like he couldn't arrest Draca um, because that's the way the law is written, that if somebody, you know, stood their ground, quote unquote, then they're immune from prosecution and arrest. And obviously there's kind of a two-step process in the criminal justice system. You're arrested and then it goes to prosecutors and they decide whether to file charges and actually pursue the charges or, you know, there's, they can take other routes too. But, you know, the sheriff's role is obviously to make an arrest. And so he said, I'm not going to make an arrest. I'm going to kick it to the state attorney's office and see what they think. But this caused, you know, heads rolled, you know, people were, were extremely upset about this. And it, and it took three weeks before they finally, after the shooting, before we finally got charged. All right. Right, right. And in that three week period, like there uh, a video from the convenience store, a TV station got the video and played it and it kind of forced the sheriff's office to release it. And um, and so then the video was just everywhere. And it, it was it didn't have the best angle, but it showed that it looked like Mr. McLaughlin was starting to turn away by the time that Mr. Draco pulled his gun and shot him. So that caused all kinds of, you know, people were very upset, you know, understandably that what they saw in the video and, and what the sheriff said didn't seem to be lining up. There were a lot of protests. And then there was an also an aspect of race here because Mr. McLaughlin is black and Mr. Draco is white. 
And so there was a feeling that this case was being handled differently because the victim was black and that perhaps Mr. Draca's perception of how much danger he was in was also impacted by the race of, of Mr. McLaughlin's. Three weeks later, though, ultimately, the late Bernie McCabe, who was the state attorney here in Pinellas, Pasco, and he passed away um, last year, but he ultimately filed a charge of manslaughter against Mr. Draca. We're talking about Florida's Stand Your Ground Law with Catherine Varn of the Tampa Bay Times. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. We're talking about the state's controversial Stand Your Ground Law with Catherine Varn, who has covered the issue for the Tampa Bay Times. All right, Catherine, are you familiar with uh, somehow uh, some of the other states that have enacted this law or maybe some of the other cases around Florida? Is this something that we're seeing really expanding to other states as well and becoming as, as renowned? So yes, other states are are creating their own laws. You know, 38 other states or 38 states total have it, including Florida. And it's being, I'm not as familiar with what other, you know, big cases in other states and how it's being used. I think there's a lot of attention on Florida because we were the first to do it. And it has been applied in some really interesting cases that again, that maybe lawmakers never envisioned um, when they passed it. So this is from our the Tampa Bay Times's 2013 analysis of the law. First of all, like just some, some quick stats. And again, it's from 2013, so it's going on 10 years old, but it is one of the most comprehensive looks at the law. Those who invoke stand your ground to avoid prosecution have been extremely successful. Um, nearly 70% have gone free. Defendants claiming stand your ground are more likely to prevail if the victim is black. The defense has been invoked in dozens of cases with minor or no injuries. A Miami man who was arrested with a single marijuana cigarette, a Fort Myers homeowner who shot a bear used it, a West Palm beach jogger who beat a Jack Russell Terrier used it. And this is from the story too, people often go free under stand your ground in cases that seem to make a mockery of what lawmakers intended. One man killed two unarmed people and walked out of jail. Another shot a man as he lay on the ground. Others went free after shooting their victims in the back. So, um, and in nearly a third of the cases, the Times analyzed defendants initiated the fight, shot an unarmed person or pursued their victim and still went free. That was again, an analysis by the Tampa Bay Times and it, it, Susan Taylor Martin wrote this portion. Let me bring up an analysis of FBI data. This came out after uh, the state pa first passed the Stand Your Ground Law in 2005. The FBI found that when the gunman is white and the victim is black, homicides are five times more likely to be deemed justified than when the situation is reversed, the victim is white. Are, are you finding that as well? That that seems to match with the the data that that um, is in is in our analysis too. 73% of those who killed a black person face no penalty compared to 59% of those who killed a white person. And in the cases I've seen that I've covered, which really are Michael Draca and uh, Curtis Reeves, Curtis Reeves is white and his victim was white. So not really a part there, but 
in the case of uh, Draca, I mean, he was ultimately convicted, prosecuted and convicted, and, and he was a white man who killed, killed um, a black man. So that's not to say that everything's, these disparities are fixed or, you know, that was just one case, but people after the conviction were pointing it to it as an example of a time when the justice system worked and the most just result was achieved. And actually I just covered a stand your ground hearing in a much smaller case, but it was here in St. Petersburg, a um, bar manager pushed a, a man, a patron who had come in and he was transient and had been a regular at the bar for a while, but he had started becoming a little bit more belligerent. Um, and he came to the bar and a bartender asked the manager to intervene, kind of like get him out of there kind of thing. Although he wasn't like trespassed or anything like that. But anyway, they kind of had a confrontation on the sidewalk right outside the rest or right outside the bar, which is um, the former spot for hops and props, which is like right on the foot of the pier. And um, the man, Darren McFarlane, uh, the bar manager pushed the patron whose name was Bruce Sinizak. And he, Bruce Sinizak fell back, hit his head and went unconscious and never woke up. And he ultimately died. Mr. McFarland tried to use a stand your ground defense and it went to a hearing and um, ultimately the judge ruled against him um, and said that it wasn't a stand your ground case and he ended up pleading guilty and is serving a pretty short jail sentence and probation. But in that case, um, Mr. McFarland was black and Mr. Senezak was white. So you have to look at cases individually, you know, and some of them buck the trends, but certainly, you know, there's, there are issues with race all over the criminal justice system and black men often are disproportionately represented. And so, you know, you can't deny those, those facts and that data that, that race, you know, and equity is, you know, a central issue in our criminal justice system that needs, needs to be addressed. You had uh, alluded to earlier, uh, that there have been accusations that the enforcement of this law was not what state lawmakers had originally intended to do. So last year, Democrats in the uh, in the legislature introduced a bill that would repeal stand your ground, but it didn't get very far, did it? No, and I think that's that's been interesting. Like, there's been talk of that many years that you know to try to repeal stand your ground. I remember that being a big topic of conversation around the Draca case. And that I, I want to say Democrats called for a special session to repeal it, and that didn't end up happening. But that's really interesting, too. And you, you'll see these with Draca, like there were very few politicians who spoke about it. Like they didn't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole because once the video came out, then it was like it was not nearly as clear cut as what was presented initially. And I remember, you know, trying to get. Um, lawmakers and others to kind of speak on the uh, the sheriff's decision and was this a good call and what do you think and and it was it was difficult I think people saw the video and were like oh that's not great and and people who are advocates for stand your ground it's certainly not like a banner stand your ground case that you want to use as like this is why we passed this law so it's definitely interesting to see that too, kind of how the politics play out after one of these happens and, and whether or not stand your ground advocates. And, you know, as part of this too, because um, a lot of times these cases are shootings, gun advocates as well, and Second Amendment advocates kind of what, what they say after this and whether they speak on it at all is, is really telling to me. Because again, 
here's someone who said they were in fear. Um, here's someone who who lawfully owned a gun and used it, at least in the Michael Drake case. And what do we think? And it was kind of hard to get get those points of view because it's it is so it is so gray. Uh, and you know nobody wants to say the wrong thing. Well, conservative politicians have been you know backing this law as empowering people to protect themselves. So it looks like stand your ground is not going away. And there might not be even any kind of movement to tweak it, as far as you can tell. Uh, yeah, not that not that I know of. Um, definitely not going away. And uh, I mean, they the state legislature made the law stronger in 2017. So uh, if that's any you know clue for what's next, I don't imagine weakening the laws is probably going to happen anytime soon. All right, so just kind of wrapping up here, Catherine, a lot of confusion about the law, a lot of confusion about whether to charge people, uh, a lot of confusion about whether for police to arrest some of these people to begin with. Um, Do you see any of this confusion clearing up at all, or are we going to keep going down this road in the future, as far as you can tell? I mean, I think things always get cleared up eventually by case law, um, just as case more cases are tried and more stand your ground hearings go through the system. There's there's going to be precedent that you can use to argue the next time over. But in some cases, I guess that could maybe muddle things more, too, because then there's this case over here, the, the you know, the judge ruled this way. And this case over here, the judge ruled this way. You're you know dealing with different jurisdictions and different, you know, judiciaries making different decisions. So. There's again, there's been talk of of repealing it. There's been talk of weakening it. There's been talk of trying to just clarify some of the language. But it's one of those things that it's looking at a split moment where where a decision someone made a decision and and then you're dealing with very high emotions because someone is either killed or hurt very badly. A lot again, a lot of times race is a factor and and that can lead to what we saw like with with the Drake case protests and, and with Zimmerman as well. And so when you're dealing with those high emotions when you, and and a law that that doesn't have a you know a ton of clarity to it, that's you know kind of a, a recipe for kind of what we've seen. So you know I don't I don't know of anything that's changing. Um, I'm not you know, up in Tallahassee, like talking to lawmakers in the way that a lot of, you know, my colleagues are who work up there, but it doesn't seem like a, a solution is in sight at this point. All right, Catherine, anything else you'd like to mention about Stand Your Ground? One thing that I think is interesting, I don't know where this would fit in, but one of the big questions that came about in the Jerica case was the question of who started it. There's a belief that with Jerica, he went up to Marquise McLaughlin's girlfriend and said, why did you park in this handicapped parking space? Like, and started arguing with her. And so there was a feeling of he started the argument. So why does he get to use stand your ground now? And interestingly, that really doesn't play a part. Um, same thing with Curtis Reeves. I mean, he asked Chad Olson to not use his phone during the previews. And then that kind of set off the argument. It's kind of the I did a big story on this with Draca and kind of the the factor that comes into play is when it gets physical and if someone you know pushes someone else and and it goes from there then you know because what you're looking at is whether you're at risk of great bodily harm or death words aren't going to kill you so even though these confrontations are initiated in some cases by the person who ends up shooting the other person it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. They can still use stand your ground. And that was one of the things that my colleagues or 
my former colleague Susan Taylor Martin looked at in her story too. And it it does not that doesn't sit well with people. And so that's just another aspect of it that's that's kind of a wrinkle in the law that I think a lot of people get hung up on. All right. Looks like confusion will continue to reign on Stand Your Ground. Catherine Varna is a reporter with the Tampa Bay Times. Thanks so much for clearing up some of this confusion. We appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It was it was my pleasure. And that's it for today's show. I'd like to thank Catherine Varn and Bradley George. Our producer is Denora Prevost. I'm Steve Newborn. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week on our next edition of Florida Matters. 